It's great to see so many people loving each other and having great conversations. I, I love to see that every week here, uh, joining Sedaris myself, and uh, I just love how much you guys love each other. It's great. Um, thanks for being with us uh, for the Sabbath Sunday here. Dave explained a little bit earlier, Sabbath Sunday is a time when we really take a, a more uh, break from our, our usual rhythms of church and do something a little bit different, uh, a little bit more contemplative. Um, sometimes even more, a little more liturgical and historical as well, right? So that's what we're doing here tonight, if you came in uh, after Dave announced that at the beginning. Um, I'm going to pray for us as we get started, and then, and then uh, Dave, you want to take it away? Cool. Father, we, um, we thank you uh, for, for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you that we get to examine your word in your church, God. I just pray right now that uh, tonight would be a great time where we get to roll up our sleeves and look at this book of Mark. Look at the gospel according to Mark. And that, uh, that, you, that your spirit is here, and we pray that you would just give us ears uh, to hear, give us hearts to understand. Pray you would open our eyes so we can see your word afresh tonight as we start this sermon series in Mark. So thank you for uh, what you're going to do through it, God, and, and we, we just look forward to um, we, an expectation for the, the great thing that's going to come, the great things that will come by um, your word being better understood here at Sedaris. So we pray this uh, by your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So here's what we're going to do tonight. We are going to give all of us an introduction to the gospel of Mark. Well, actually, the gospel according to Mark. And uh, we're going to do it by asking a series of questions. And Ryan and I are going to go back and forth to answer some of these big questions that will help us then as we go for the next, how many months is it? Seven months uh, walking through the gospel according to Mark. And it's going to be a great, a great series, okay? Um, so here, here's the first question. Why do we care what this document which we call the gospel according to Mark. Why do we care what this document says? Ever wondered that? Uh, maybe you're newer to the church or you're coming back and you, you've wondered why do we come each and every week and study this document, which we call the Bible? And why in particular are we going to, to look at and, and spend so much time and so much energy uh, studying this document that, that we call the gospel according to Mark? Okay, that's the first question. Now, the first thing that I want to say about it is that most scholars believe that the gospel according to Mark is the first of the four gospels written. And that means something. It was the first attempt of these followers of Jesus to write down an account of this good news. And what, what we realize when we read We've got Mark, and we've got Matthew, and we've got Luke, and we've got John. And uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. And the reason they call them the synoptic is because there's many, uh, there's a lot of synthesis between the three. They use a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same wording in those stories. And so theologians, scholars have, have asked the question, uh, why are they similar and why are they different in some senses? Now, most would agree that, that Mark was actually written first, and then Luke and Matthew both took, uh, had access to Mark's gospel, and they used 
some of the wording and, and the stories he told, uh, sometimes word for word in the writing of their Gospels. And in fact, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a historical truth. And so, since we're a new church and this is the first time we've looked at one of the Gospels, we thought, well, let's start with the first one written, the Gospel according to Mark. Um, now, who is this author? Who is this author? Well, he's from Louisiana. <laughs> they call him Milky Mark. No. Uh, actually, Mark is referred to in Scripture as John Mark. And the reason they give him two first names is not because he's from the South, but just because there were other Johns in the Bible that you've probably heard of. And John was actually a very, very common Jewish name. So uh, the, gospel, or the, the other writers of the New Testament, when they would talk about this John Mark, they would always say, and his, also known as Mark, because people didn't want to get him confused. Now, who was John Mark? And, and if he is the author of this text, with which most scholars uh, would agree that he is, wh- why do we care what he has to say? Uh, because if you're a student of Scripture, you'll realize that John Mark is not actually one of the 12 disciples. Okay? And, I, and, and we'll talk a little bit about this uh, here in a second. But uh, what we usually think of as the New Testament are those documents that are penned by people who actually walked with and saw as eyewitnesses, the life of Jesus. John Mark is not one of those people. So how did his book get into the Bible? Okay? Let me tell you. When we read through the book of Acts, what we see actually is that this John Mark was actually a close companion of, of Paul first. And, um, well, actually, companion of Paul But actually, his mother was a great and important figure in the early church in Jerusalem. And we have this account in the book of Acts where uh, Peter and James are thrown into prison, and then they miraculously, supernaturally, escape from prison. And they go, and the first place they go is to this woman named Mary's house. Again, Mary, a very popular name. But this is Mary, who is the mother of John Mark. And she apparently hosted the house church in Jerusalem. And so we, we have, that's the first time we come across this John Mark, the son of this wonderful woman, uh, this important woman in the early church named Mary. And so uh, people knew of him. And, and, and then as you read on in Acts, what you see is that this John Mark goes with Paul, the apostle Paul, and Barnabas up to Antioch. And from Antioch, he goes with Paul and Barnabas on, their, on the beginning of their first missionary journey. Um, they go out to this island called Cyprus. Uh, and then it gets kind of uh, interesting because what happens is John Mark decides not to continue with Paul and Barnabas on the rest of the missionary journey, and he heads home. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know, he's pretty intense, and <laughs> he didn't like the fact that John Mark left. And so the next time we see John Mark's account in the book of Acts, what's happening is Barnabas, who turns out is probably the cousin of John Mark, Barnabas and Paul are arguing right before their second missionary journey, and they're arguing about whether or not they should bring along John Mark. Well, the Apostle Paul, pretty intense, didn't like the fact that John Mark left the first missionary journey. Barnabas and Paul get in a huge fight 
which as we'll see, it's very important to remember that to be a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that you're a perfect person, doesn't mean that you never make a mistake. And what happens is not only does Paul not bring along John Mark, Paul and Barnabas break up the band and Barnabas goes on his own missionary journey and Paul goes on his own, all because of this John Mark. Okay, but here's the good news. Later on, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, we see this. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, hey, you should also invite John Mark to come be a part of your ministry because he has so much to offer. And so at the end of the day, (laughs) what you realize is even the Apostle Paul, stubborn as a goat, he actually becomes quite soft and, and says very nice things about John Mark, which would make you think, Everybody's reconciled, Barnabas, Paul, John Mark, Uh, but it's important. John Mark has spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul, but actually this isn't the gospel of the Apostle Paul. In fact, John Mark spent a lot of time with another of the disciples, another of the apostles, the Apostle Peter, and if you know anything about Peter, Peter is, is probably the most important figure in the beginning of the church. He's also very prominent in this gospel, as you'll see. And what most people believe is that this John Mark spent a considerable, considerable amount of time with Peter, particularly when Peter was in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, uh, working with the church in Rome. And um, what most commentators and scholars believe is that this gospel comes out of uh, a compilation of the stories and the teaching and the sermons that were actually preached by the Apostle Peter, okay? So in, ma- in many ways, what you could call the gospel according to Mark is the gospel according to Mark based upon the teachings and experience and eyewitness of Peter. So this is, this is probably, you could even think of this as Peter's account of Jesus' life. Now, why is this important to understand John Mark's relationship to Peter? This is why it's important. Um, Have you ever received a text message and you read it one way and then you talk to the person and you realize that's not what they meant at all, right? We've all experienced that. Because there's something different with the actual words and the actual communication from the meaning that is intended by the words and the communication, correct? We get that, right? We all understand that. So it's one thing to kind of know this is what Jesus said, and it's another thing to know this is what Jesus meant. And... Guess who has the ability to know what Jesus meant? It's those people that heard him talk, that were eyewitnesses, that not only heard him tell his parables, but then were with him as he explained them behind the scenes. And that's who Peter was. That's who each of the disciples were. And so there is this vital connection between those people that had firsthand knowledge and experience to the meaning behind Jesus' words that help us 
then understand when we hear the story about Jesus, we know we're hearing it told with the proper context, with the proper meaning. Does that make sense? I mean, it's the difference between just receiving a text message from Jesus, this is what the kingdom of God means, and sitting over coffee with Jesus, having him tell you, this is what the kingdom of God means. And so the apostles have this firsthand knowledge from Jesus. And so when we're looking at uh, any document from this time, and, and the Gospel of Mark was probably written sometime in the 60s, uh, what we're asking is this question. Um, and the question is, is this document connected to an apostle? And what we have in the Gospel, according to Mark, is a document that it's connected to the Apostle Peter. And because of that, we can trust it. We can trust that not only did he know the words of Jesus, but because he was with Jesus, he understands in a unique way the meaning behind these words. Okay? And th this is really important for us to understand this, this concept. Um, because there's this part, and I mentioned it up front, there's this part of the Christian faith um, that is we're trying to be as old as possible. We're trying to be as um, ununique as possible. And, and when, we're, when I'm saying that, what I'm saying is, as Christians today living in 2017, our goal is to never say anything unique. That's called orthodoxy, right belief. And orthodoxy, right belief, is always tied to the, ap uh, the apostolic nature of the New Testament. And so there's this thing where we want to, with one hand, hold the truths that the, the, the apostles taught because they were with Jesus and they had unique authority given to them by Jesus. We want to hold those with a closed fist, and those never change. Over 2,000 years, those should never change. Now, that doesn't mean that some things don't change, which is the way that we communicate those things, and we hold those things with an open hand. So we might sing an old hymn, but we might rearrange it with new, new musicality, okay? It's an old thing being communicated in a slightly new way. So, so the old thing, which never changes, which is orthodoxy, which is the true right beliefs that Jesus gave to his apostles and that they documented for us through the New Testament writings, we then take those and never change them, even though we might use new forms, new analogies to explain that old truth which never changes. So important to remember that because there are people all around, people within the church, outside the church, that are trying to change the original intent, the original belief from something old. And, and usually they're doing it because of this thing called uh, chronological snobbery, which is to say, because we are so evolved and advanced that we understand things better than the people of old. And uh, that's a form of hubris, a form of pride that uh, continually infects the church. And we, we don't want that to infect us. We want to hold on to the things that the apostles taught because they were the ones sitting over coffee with Jesus. Yeah, I'm done with that one. Nice, nice. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, it's... Um this is kind of, these are kind of the things you get to discuss, we're discussing now, that you write out and want to put in your sermon, but you, you get too busy applying the passage and you throw it out because you say, you know, I don't have any time for that. 
And so you guys have probably never heard the term chronological snobbery before, right? I've no, I, I haven't had it. That's really fun. Chronological sn snobbery. Yeah, I think John's, John Mark was probably smarter than us. John, yeah, two 2,000 years old. He's probably smarter than us. Okay. Um, what, well, the, the next question that we, we really want to answer tonight is what is a gospel? Because um, if your Bible is anything like mine, at the top it reads, the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Mark. And then this is what verse 1 says. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we have this weird dynamic here where we have the gospel according to Mark, and then verse 1, Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this, this can be confusing here because we have actually two different usages of the word gospel right at the top of the page here, okay? One of them uh, is a gospel according to Mark, and one of them is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so to, in order to understand this word gospel, it's, it's really helpful to go back to the first century and look at how it was used then. Um, because this is a term that was in and around uh, the culture then all the time. It, it was everywhere. It was used all the time. And, and what would happen is something would go like this in, in the Empire of Rome. Um, the Empire of Rome was always focused on getting bigger and expanding and growing to increase trade routes, to increase tax revenue, and ultimately to increase the glory of the kingdom as a whole. And, and, and when they would conquer huge swaths of land, what, uh, what the, the empire would do is they would send messengers to all the towns. They would send messengers to all the towns with a euangelion, a gospel, a good news, with good news. And, and what these guys were, were they were, um, they were, I guess, morale boosters. They were morale boosters. And they would go, go into a town, say, hey, I'm, I have a euangelion. Um, everybody be here Saturday morning, uh, 8, 8 a.m., or when the sun comes up, I guess. And th then they, they would proclaim that good news. They would proclaim that good news, and it would be often some victory. So they would be, uh, the gospel is a proclamation of a victory happening in the empire. And so when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we actually are talking about a proclamation of a victory. A proclamation of a victory. Okay? Um, or you could say an announcement of victory, proclamation of a victory. And the question is, whose victory? Is it the gospel according to Mark, or is it the gospel according to Jesus Christ? First, we're going to start here with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is, which is the, the victory of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Jesus Christ, Mark says, puts Christ right on the end of it for us. And, and Christ is a term that means anointed one. It means anointed one. Dave talked about last week when the kings uh, of Israel came to the throne, often what, or every time what happened first is they would be anointed with oil and then the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and so this, this is Mark's way of saying this is a proclamation of King Jesus, of a victory one. Okay? What is that victory? So the, what, the, the victory that he's talking about is the gospel message, the gospel message. Uh, and uh, to really understand what the gospel is, we, we have to lean on the historical nature of everything that God had revealed to the Israelites up to that point. In order to understand the good news of a victory, you have to understand the war that you're in. 
okay? And, and so Mark is pulling from this, this vibrant history of Jewish and Hebrew um, literature and, and interaction and revelation from God that outlines the war like this. God created everything. It was good. Human beings were very good. And then sin enters the scene. Human, human beings rebel against God. And they're on the opposite end of God's judgment. So if, jo- if God were to come back and put the, the creation right again, all human beings would be on the opposite end of his judgment. That's the bad news. That, 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 that's the war part. But Jesus comes up, and the good news is that there's a way uh, that Jesus provides salvation for all of us who are on the opposite end of God's judgment now. And, and God's doing all of this as a gift of grace. Okay, so, so that's the war. That's, that's the gospel. And so when we say the gospel according to Mark and the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John, all of them would agree uh, upon this central uh, message of what the war is and what the victory is. Okay? So they, they, they're all the same in that regards to the original gospel message of the war that we're in and how it's won. How they differ is, is, is really determined, is, is really discovered, I guess I would rather say, in how this word gospel is used here when it says gospel, according to Mark. And it's being used as a, uh, a genre. A genre. So Mark pens this, this work, and then it eventually gets called a gospel. It's, it's a new genre. People don't really know how to, how to classify it. It's a genre that includes lots of different things. It's, it's biographical in nature. It includes the events of Jesus' life. It doesn't include his birth, so it's not fully biographical. Um, it's historical. It includes a lot of events that are going on in Israel around the time that Jesus was alive. And so it's historical in that nature. Um, it's, it's a teaching document. A lot of Jesus' sermons are in here. Um, a lot of his uh, arguments are in here. A lot of his say- wise sayings are in, are in here. So it's a teaching document. Um, it's, it's poetry. It pulls in the poetry of the Psalms and throws it in there too. Um, and then, perhaps even most importantly, it's theological. At different points in time, Mark is telling this historical, biographical, poetic, teaching account and then he interjects his own thoughts on what's going on behind the scenes. He'll say, oh, Jesus said this because, big theological truth, he'll drop in there. Um, if you've read the Gospel of John, John does this all the time. Uh, that's what he's really focused on. But we're, we're, we're going to see Mark do it too, okay? So, so the Gospels, as a genre, are a bit of everything, but that, that, that doesn't mean that they're nothing. Because that they're a bit of everything, applied to one man, Jesus Christ. And it, it's really true to life in that way, isn't it? Life is full of a lot of different genres. And so here we, we have a kaleidoscope of genres with Jesus as the central focus of them. Okay? And so that, that's what they are. And um, the, the best way to describe it, to describe what a gospel as a genre is, to describe the gospel according to Mark is a portrait. A portrait. Um, so I, I use that word intentionally. I didn't say a picture, because a picture is just a snapshot that, that perfectly displays everything about what is in reality happening. Um, I, I, I didn't say an abstract painting. 
um, because uh, Mark isn't just kind of giving us some broad brushstrokes uh, from which we can't really determine much about Jesus and it's mostly to be interpreted on our own. No, Mark is very specific in what he wants to tell us. Um, but I, I use the word portrait, and uh, has anybody here seen the, the Netflix series The Crown? The Crown? The Crown is a great Netflix series. I'm really appalled. You guys need to go see it. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm bummed for you guys. It's great. So The Crown um, chronicles Winston Churchill's later years in life. So he was the prime minister for a really, really, really long time. Okay? And so it, I think The Crown pops in when, when he's about to turn 80 years old. And, and, this, and in The Crown, um, there's a, he sits, he, he hires um, a guy named Graham Sutherland, great painter of the time, to paint a portrait of him, you know, uh, so that they can hang it in the hall and he can be this distinguished figure. And so he hires this Graham Sutherland to paint a portrait of him. And in and, and the series, you see him sitting for this as the guy does the portrait. He draws it, he, he paints it, and they have conversations, and there's kind of flashbacks and stuff like that. Um, and, and this portrait is displayed at Winston Churchill's 80th birthday. And he hates it. Spoiler alert. And his family hates it. And it, they hate it so much that after this series aired, it actually came out. What happened to the painting was that night, they told one of their servants to go out to one of their estates, bring the painting, and burn it. Why did he hate it so much? Because Graham Sutherland, in this portrait, chose to bring out themes of fatigue, of age, that made Winston Churchill almost look a, a, a little bit like an old lunatic, is, is how he termed it. And, and, and so, th those things were true about Winston Churchill. Those, those things were true about him. And, and uh, Sutherland was bringing those things out because he was trying to communicate that um, to Winston Churchill, who didn't have the self-awareness to see it, and so that the entire country who wasn't on board with this could also get on board. And so th this is what the gospel according to Mark is doing. He's painting a portrait highlighting emphases, emphases, emphases of who Jesus was that are true but that are really important to communicate to a certain audience that he's trying to communicate to, all right? And, and so that's, that, that's why we're, we're going to be looking at these emphases tonight. Um, and Dave, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about who Mark was writing, John Mark was writing to um, so that we can get a little bit better perspective on that. It's a great transition. Really, really good. Because this is a question I'm going to answer. Uh, what was happening around John Mark when he wrote this gospel? This is the answer. We call this the occasion. What was the occasion for writing this? Well, well as I said, uh, primarily due to the fact that there's, in the gospel of Mark, there's these Latinisms, which, like when he talks about pennies, like the coins, and palaces, he uses Latin terms. Uh, for reasons like that, most people are pretty sure that he was writing from Italy, at least, and, and more specifically, probably from Rome, because like we said, Peter was in Rome preaching, teaching, um, and John Mark was there with him. And he's probably writing, uh, there's some debate about this, but probably in the mid-60s. Now, now, here's the deal about the mid-60s. Um, unlike the 60s, when we think about the 60s, these 60s were not fun, okay? It was not a lot of fun thing, 
things happening, particularly for Christians. In fact, in 49, the emperor had banished all Christians from Rome. He'd evicted them. He said, you have to get out. Now, now by this time, the, the Christians had been allowed to come back in, uh, but this new wave of persecution had bubbled up. And, and the reason is there's this guy named Nero. Um, he was the emperor, uh, and he was trying to rebuild the city, and so he decided to burn it down. And he burned one down, and he decided, well, people aren't going to like the fact that I'm burning the city down, so I'm going to blame it on the Christians. So he blames it on the Christians, and then he goes on this rampage persecuting the Christians. And many, many Christians, because of their faith in Jesus, were killed. In fact, uh, Nero was known, known for this thing that he'd do where he would uh, put Christians on a stake, light them on fire, and use them to line the roads of the city, human tiki torches. So this is the occasion. This is what the people, the church in Rome were feeling, what they were experiencing. I mean, can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine the questions of, is this really worth it? Can you imagine uh, what that would be like? To be honest, we probably can't understand what it would be like to have the things that we believed about Jesus mean life, death, torture, suffering. So this is what they're experiencing. How could this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? If Jesus is his son, why is he letting those who follow him experience this? We'll see as we go along how Mark, in his gospel, is uniquely, as Ryan said, trying to paint a picture to help these Christians understand what that's like. What that's like. Now, even though we can't experience this, we experience part of this, don't we? This idea of being marginalized. This idea of, of it seems like the numbers are dwindling. It seems like People don't like the fact that we're Christians. So even in Seattle, we can experience some of this. And I, I think, I hope, part of the occasion for the writing of Mark will also help us uniquely because in some ways we experience some of this isolation as the church. So when the people are tired, when they're confused, when they're suffering, when they're marginalized... What do we need? We need a, a few big things re-answered for us. We need a few things re-evaluated. We need, we need to remember a few things. And so what we'll see as we get deeper into the structure of Mark, uh, this, this, this good news, uh, that he's trying to address these specific concerns. He is trying to give us hope in the midst of hopelessness. He's trying to give these Roman Christians a reason, a way to understand what they're going through. And so what we'll find um, in Mark is a very unique structure. And um, like Ryan said, uh, Mark is not telling you everything that he's learned about Jesus or everything that Peter has learned. You can think of it 
as post-it notes. Every sermon Peter's preached, every teaching that he's received, it's a, it's a post-it note. And he's decided to arrange these things in a specific way. And, and that's the other thing about the genre of a gospel. You have to understand it's not necessarily chronological. Oftentimes it's more organized thematically. So, so you picture Mark taking all these stories, all these things that he knows about Jesus, and, and then rearranging them, putting them in an order to tell a story. Uh, specifically to help these Roman Christians. And so he puts it in this structure, and the, the, the story of Mark goes in three main acts, two big acts and one small act. The first big act is chapters 1 to 8, and what you find is, is all these miracles, all these healings, uh, exorcisms, uh, Jesus walking on water, all these amazing things uh, that make you who asked this question, who, who is this guy? And you see all these people asking this question, who is this Jesus with this power, with this authority, who's forgiving, who is he? Okay, that's the first act. And then right, the middle act, act two, right in, in the middle of the gospel, it's this really small piece that's centered around this one really big question. And we'll come back to this at the very end of our service tonight. It's this very big question. He gathers his disciples around him, and he asks them the question, who do you say that I am? Who, who do you say that I am? And, and what you see, Peter's the one. Imagine that. Peter's the one who, who, who speaks up and, and says, you are the Messiah. And in a sense, he gets it right. But in a sense, he doesn't fully understand what that right answer is. And I think this is so important to grasp. And the reason we, we realize that is because 827 to the end of chapter 10, you get Jesus saying three times, hey, just so you know, this is what it's going to look like for me to be the Messiah. And he predicts his death, and he predicts his beating, and he, and he predicts all of the suffering and in fact, the, t- the disciples, they don't get it. They keep saying, no way, we won't let this happen to you. And I think what this middle, the second act is highlighting is that even when we get the right answer about Jesus, we realize that it's a two-part test. Okay? You ever take a test? You're like, man, I nailed the multiple choice. But then the essay came. And when I had to describe, and when Peter has to describe, what does it mean that he is the Messiah? He realizes when he gets his grade back, you know, he got the multiple choice right, but the essay, not so good. And so this middle act, the second act, is really about this, this really interesting thing that I think so many of us, even if you consider yourself a Christian, we need to re-examine and re-understand what, what does this mean that I believe Jesus is the Christ, which is another way of saying Jesus is the Messiah, which is another way of saying Jesus is the King. What does that mean? This is Act 2. And then Acts 3 explains that definition that Jesus gives to his disciples in the second act. Act 3 is him now living that out and him becoming this Messiah that he has redefined, that he has changed in, in the thinking of these Jewish followers. He now lives it out and becomes this Messiah that he's claimed. And so we'll see how all of that goes. Um, so... What, what is the big takeaway from, from this question, this occasion? Uh, one uh, is that, well, I'll just make one. We're always surprised by Jesus. Every time we come to Jesus, 
we're surprised. When, when we just see him again, when we just re-examine him again, when we reconsider him again, we should be, or for the first time, we should be surprised because he's just not the box that we've put him in. That's good. Thanks, Dave. Well, I think uh, we, we, now we're going to go through uh, four of these themes of Mark. We're going to go through four of them. Um, and uh, the first one is something that comes uh, right off the page and hits you right in the first chapter. Um, when you read the book of Mark, you sit down to read it. Um, one of the great ways, one of the things you can do to get ready for this series is just to sit down and read the whole book of Mark in, in, in one sitting. Try to do it in one sitting. It'll take you about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. But it, it's really great to help you just, you'll be able to piece things together like you never pieced them together before because you'll be like, oh yeah, I just read that and I read that and that's, oh, this is how things piece together. But no, but one of the things that hits you is how fast it moves. How fast it moves. Uh, I, I was reading Mark and I just felt like, I was like, whoa, can't we take a breath here, Mark? You're just going so fast. It's, Jesus goes and does this. Jesus heals this person. Jesus casts out this demon. Jesus goes to another town. Jesus prays. Jesus, and then his disciples are doing things. They're doing that. They're doing this. They're doing that. People are arguing with him. Jesus is fighting back. And so this is the, the, the theme that we're, the first one that we called it, we, we called it the theme of immediacy or of urgency. Um, and, and that's really highlighted by how um, Mark, he uses one word so many times. He uses the word immediately 42 times in his gospel. It's only in the New Testament 86 times. So it's just one shy of being half of all New Testament uses of this word immediately are in the book of Mark. So in, in the first chapter, we have the, <laughs> when, when Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit immediately descends upon him. Then after the baptism, the Holy Spirit immediately sends him in the wilderness to be tempted. And then upon coming back uh, from the temptation, he immediately calls his disciples. His disciples immediately respond. They end up going to a town. The first thing they do when, when they get there, they'd immediately go into a synagogue and teach. When Jesus starts teaching, someone immediately comes up demon-possessed and he casts a demon out. Okay? It, immediately his fame spreads throughout the countryside. And uh, then after that synagogue experience, immediately he goes to Peter's mother-in-law house, heals her. So, hey, Peter, your, your mother-in-law's sick. I'm going to heal you. So there's this, this immediately thing that keeps on happening, that Jesus is going here, here, here. There's a very high beats per minute thing going on here in Mark. High sense of urgency by Jesus and by his, his disciples. And after that day, still in chapter 1 here, Jesus goes uh, to sleep. <laughs> he wakes up the next morning early, goes to a desolate place. He goes to a desolate place to pray. Everybody in the town starts waking up. They start looking for Jesus. They can't find him. His disciples get on board like, hey, we've got to find Jesus. Everybody wants him. They have more sicker here. They have more demon-possessed people that are here. Everybody wants to hear more of his teaching. We have to find him. They eventually find him, and Jesus looks at them. And he says, let's go to the next town, or the, the next town. Come on, we have to go. And they're like, what? Like, look at everything that's going on here. Why would you leave this? It's like if Sedaris started blowing up and there's a 500-person church here. And then D Dave and I are like, well, let's go to, to Ashland, Oregon, or something like that. You know? No, I'm going to go to the next town. He says, I'm going to preach there also, for this is why I came. 
this is why I came. And so he goes to the next town. He preaches. He heals. He um, exercises demons. Um, and then he goes to the next town and the next town. And the next, there's tons of towns in the, the Israel uh, countryside. And he does this for three years. does this for three years. It's a good long ministry of town to town. And then his mission changes, and it's time to go to the big city. And he's urgent in this too, and he goes there to die. That's what he tells his disciples. He's, we, we're going there to die. So there's, there's this urgency that comes with Jesus that you really don't get from any other um, leader of or starter or it, the person who inaugurated uh, any one of these other world religions, whether that be Buddha, um, you know, sitting under a tree, becoming enlightened, whether that's Muhammad, um, waiting in a city for the right pol- political opportunity where he can seize power and take over, which actually took a really long time in his life. I think that the figure that's most like Jesus might be Elon Musk. Is that crazy? You guys, you guys heard of this guy? This is Elon Musk, a SpaceX guy, boring company. Uh, you might know him through, uh, if you use PayPal, he, he founded PayPal. Um, but this is a guy who has a crazy demanding work schedule. He's famous for his five-minute meetings that he holds with people, okay, five-minute meetings uh, throughout the day. And he's burned through a couple marriages, and he's just a really intense guy, you know. Um, but Jesus is a lot like Elon Musk in this sense. And, uh, and we see Jesus sending his disciples to do the same thing with this intense urgency of mission-mindedness. Jesus sends his disciples to do the same thing. Um, and, and, and that really turns the question back on us as Jesus' disciples. What's our urgency with regards to the mission of God? In, in, in the areas of sphere, or the, the, the spheres of influence that God has given us, what is uh, our urgency like in that? Uh, may, maybe there's a time in your life where you said, oh, you know, I, I was a lot more urgent for the gospel then, you know? Um, and so, what, so Mark is going to really uh, challenge, reading the book of Mark challenges that. Uh, for disciples, um, and uh, one of the great ways you can start is, uh, I know everybody wasn't here for the, the sermon series that we did over the summer, but it was, it was on prayer, and, and this is where Jesus, one of the, this is where Jesus got his sense of urgency, going to the desolate pra- places to pray, to pray there, he, and it was clear that coming out of those, he received his marching orders, he received those marching orders, and uh, he had a, an, an, an intense urgency about him in executing them, so Go back, catch the sermons you missed, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I love I love that about this gospel. It's so urgent, you know. And and uh, we just sent our leadership team through the disc assessment. Anybody, anybody else done the disc assessment? There's four types of people. Well, I think this is one of the reasons why we can know that Peter was behind this gospel in a lot of ways. Peter's a definitely a D, uh, which means he wants to be brief. Be great. No, what is it? Be brief. He wants be brief, be bold, and be gone. That's Peter, and you see this in this this gospel, uh, this 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 intense sense of mission. Like, uh, and Peter got that from Jesus. This intense sense. Uh, this is what I came to do, and I'm going to accomplish it. Um, and it's to go and to die. Uh, and so we have that call as well as disciples, and that's the next big theme that I that I think this gospel uh, stirs up in us, which is the, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And there's this really interesting thing happens in the gospel according to Mark where um, the disciples, they don't really look so great. 
you, you hear these stories told about the disciples, and they just keep falling short of what it means to be in Jesus' inner circle, okay? Um, it's not flattering if you read through Mark, and you'll see this as you read through it. They're, they're not painted in a very beautiful light. Uh, they're very dense. That's the word that keeps coming up in my head. They're very dense. They need multiple reminders. They miss the point. One time, Peter himself is called the devil. <laughs> they fall asleep on watch. Uh, they're greedy, and they really want to, to have all the benefits that come with being a follower of Jesus. So they're really, really dense. But in, in, in the same breath, they follow Jesus, this carpenter. They give up everything to follow him. They give up their jobs. They give up their livelihood. They, they give up all stability. They give up all comfort to follow this Jesus who's wandering around the countryside with no place to lay their head. They're giving up so much to follow Jesus. And they change the purpose of their life. They change their life mission statement. And they ask Jesus lots of questions. So they're humble. They trust Jesus like they've never trusted anybody else. They've asked his opinion on things. They've cried out to him in trouble for help. And so, in the one sense, they're incredibly dense, and, and you could say that they're quite stupid. But on the other the sense, they're courageous and bold, and they follow and trust Jesus. And so, I'm going to give credit to Ryan here. The picture that we get in the Gospel of Mark of what is a disciple is this picture of sacrificial stupidity. That's, when you look at the disciples, that's the picture that Mark paints for us. They follow, but not usually very well. And, and here's what I want to say about this. This is hopefully incredibly comforting to you. That, that to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, doesn't mean that you have to know everything. Doesn't mean that you have to be enlightened or brilliant or have a seminary degree or... Um, be Elon Musk. You don't have to do any of that. You just have to follow Jesus and trust him and ask him questions and cry out to him in times of trouble. All you have to do is be stupidly sacrificial. That's what it means to be a disciple. And we get this beautiful picture of this in the Gospel of Mark. And it's so refreshing to me because I fall short so often of what I know it means to understand Jesus, to understand what he asks of me. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that's okay. Just keep trusting him. Just keep following him, even if you don't fully get it. That's great. Thanks, Dave. Um, yeah. I kept on thinking that at the, the there's this there's a pair or there's a story of the rich young ruler and after the the ruler can't follow because he won't sacrifice, he won't give up anything and and Peter says, we've left everything to follow you you know and in some sense these guys are heroes right like in some sense, they they have great faith, all right um, our next theme is authority um, and that's uh, there's an authority dynamic that that runs throughout this gospel runs straight through it and and. It's Jesus having ultimate authority and everybody else on the scene who had authority um, losing it. Um, and so there's this dynamic of fighting for authority. But Jesus' authority, he comes with authoritative teaching. 
um, he shows up and teaches, and the people, they, Mark says, they marveled because he taught as one who had authority, okay? Um, he has authority over the spiritual world. He uh, casts out demons. In fact, whenever he walks into a place, it's kind of like if there's any demons kind of in the area, they are forced to come and identify themselves and ask what they what uh, Jesus is going to do with them. So that, that, that happens over and over. And, uh, so Jesus has authority over the spiritual world. He has authority over the, the natural world. Um, he has this unique ability to make bread and fish multiply thousands of times over. Um, he can shout at storms and they calm. Um, and then he has authority over religion itself. This is the one that gets him into the most trouble, okay? So Jesus is, he has authority over religion, and he cites himself as having enough authority to mess with all of the Hebrew law that's coming before him. So he gets into a discussion with the Pharisees about um, what you can do and what you can't do on Sabbath. And he says, the Son of Man, that's a Hebrew expression for the Messiah, the Son of Man, he implicitly says it's him, this Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath, so I have more authority than you. And after he says that, it's all the way back in chapter 3, they go and conspire with the political leaders of the day to see how they might kill him. They're upset that Jesus' authority is superseding theirs, okay? And, and this is what we talked about last week in Psalm 2. Dave talked about it in his sermon, that uh, the rulers of this world who have authority, when they see the, ki- the, the anointed of the Lord come, they gather together in groups and discuss how they might kill him. And if, eventually they do here, you know? Um, and so this is a call for, um, I, think we, I think when Jesus shows up again, Jesus is coming, it could be tonight, it could be tomorrow, we're going to be surprised at who's uncomfortable with his authority in their lives. The Gospel of Mark asks us as believers uh, to look at all the areas of our life and ask, is the Lord an authority? Does the Lord have authority in how I govern my romantic relationships in life? Does he have authority over my finances? Does he have authority here, there, this relationship, that relationship? Or do I have that authority? Or does, do, have I, I given it to somebody else even? So that, the authority of Jesus is a theme present throughout this. Um, and what's most incredible about Jesus' authority is how he uses it. He's not like humans. He doesn't use it for himself. He actually turns it around and it, it actually makes you really want to come underneath it. So, Dave, next theme. Okay, this is the final theme that, that you got to get. And I already mentioned this. So I won't spend a lot of time talking about it here. But you, you've got this picture in that middle act, act two. Uh, this question is posed. Okay, what, what is it? Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, the Messiah. And, and, and then Jesus spends the next three chapters explaining uh, that Peter didn't really even know what he was saying when he said the Messiah and he begins to explain um, and then you get to this climax at the end of that act act two in in, in uh, chapter 10 and Jesus says this very famous line he says for the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom that that's the climax of act two and it highlights this very important theme all throughout Mark that the Messiah, the King, the Savior, the Christ, is actually going to be the suffering Son of God. The suffering Son of God. And nobody expected the Messiah to be this, to be suffering. 
and Jesus suffers. And, and, and chapter, or act three, or three is all about the suffering that Jesus experiences to become the savior of his people. So this is such an important theme that as we, as we go through, it'll come up again and again and again. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah and that he experiences more suffering than anyone else in human history? What does that mean for us as followers of this Jesus? And I think what we begin to see and what we'll see again and again is that when we're called to be a disciple of Jesus, when we're called to follow Jesus, we're not called to the benefits. We're called to the suffering. And we begin to see that, that the cost of discipleship is incredibly high. And that we must count the cost if we are to follow Jesus. And th- this is what the Gospel of Mark teaches us, is that Jesus is the suffering Son of God, and to follow him will inevitably mean suffering. Have we counted that cost? Are we willing to take it? Are we willing to lose our life that we might find it? Are we willing to give up our life as a ransom for others? That's what it means to be like Jesus, to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to enter into his suffering along with him. Very, very challenging stuff that's coming right out of this gospel, according to Mark. And so, that's all we got, right? That's all we got. Um, We hope, whoa, we hope that this begins to give you a canvas through which you can begin to paint your own picture of who who Jesus is. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up here. We're going to sing three more songs, hear some more scripture, and then at the end I'm going to give us a charge. But in the next few songs, uh, I want to give us a chance, uh, because uh, Jesus is the suffering Son of God, to remember the cost of the cross, that he's paid the penalty for sin, and all its effects, both in our own lives and around the world, that, that we remember that the way we begin our reconciliation with God and with each other and, and with the fallen world is through the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood that he shed, the wrath that he absorbed upon himself that's the due penalty for our sin as he breathed his last breath and died on the cross. We need to remember that. It's one of the the themes of Mark is this idea of the cross, the cost and the power of the cross. 